Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, April 23rd, and this is the weekly market update. As always, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a registered financial advisor. I'm just a guy on the internet. You need to do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Um, a couple things before we get started here. Uh, again, you know, we have the actionable intelligence new alert newsletter, which is available. If you're interested, if a lot of people will tell me that they're interested in these videos and or they've been watching these videos for a long time. So if you have an interest in some people just watch it for entertainment value, for information value. But if you are interested in understanding the investment thesis that uh is distilled from the, the, the type of discussions we have on here. You know, that's the purpose of the actionable intelligence alert newsletter. Uh, subscri the subscription instructions are in the show notes. Uh, link is available. Also, we have a Patreon. We, um, people want to support us in some way monetarily. They don't want the newsletter, but you can subscribe uh, or support us via Patreon if you are so inclined. And uh, as an inducement to do that, we offer a free sample of our writing. Well, it's not free. If you give at least $5, you will get a one-shot deal where we will send you a sampling of our writing that will include a recent uh, portfolio edition. So that is a good deal. A lot of people will find that useful. And then also we ask you to, if you find value in these uh, videos, share, like, comment, um, we're trying to get the word out. We're trying to grow the channel. I get good advice from people. Some things that people need to understand is, you know, on response time, uh, just give an example. I mean, how my life is, right? I work in construction six days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, it doesn't leave a lot of time to answer emails. I try to answer emails. I have to do all the customer service for the newsletter. I have to write the newsletter. I have to do these videos. You know, for example, this week is Holy Week for the Orthodox, of which I am one. And so there's a lot of services to attend. And so time is like for everybody, right? Everybody in life has things going on. So just ask you to be patient if you're a customer, if you are looking for a response. I do read all the emails that come in. I don't necessarily respond to them all. I, I just, there's so many communications that come my way, I just can't respond to them all. So uh, occasionally I will, sometimes uh, a question will come in that's a, of a general nature and we will try to address it on here for the benefit of everyone. Uh, again, I've, I've, I'm thinking about doing a live stream. I'm thinking about uh, for the subscribers to do a uh, Zoom call. But again, time is always of an essence. I'm um, in the, currently looking to change jobs that will give me more time to get out of uh, the direct construction business that I'm in, uh, which would just give me like hopefully a 40 hour week, which would allow me to uh, do uh, more effort on this. So uh, another thing that we're going to go back to is I'm going to have a short segment at the start where I'm going to give my views on something. A lot, Some people like that. A lot of people don't. I just encourage you if you don't like my views on certain things that you just um, fast forward to the or forward the video to the uh, investment stuff, if that's what you come here for, the finance stuff, that's what you're interested in. But uh, I'm going to give my views on some things because I feel that they're important. And I just don't have time to go do stuff on Rumble and Odyssey and all that. I, if I was full time, I would do that. But uh, these things in my mind are applicable to uh, what we're doing, at least in my mind. And uh, so don't bother commenting that you don't like it. You just don't come to the channel or forward. You don't really have to comment to me because if you're somebody I don't know, there's a lot of people that have been watching these videos. For example, I have to say this so often because there's constantly new people coming and I know it's offensive. And, you know, I know in the United States that, you know, especially with the younger crowd, the, the demographic here is of younger people. And they seem to think that, uh, well, not everybody, I don't want to make generalizations, but quite a few people seem to think that uh, everybody cares what they think about. They, they don't. Um, I don't care what you think. Uh, this is a free market of ideas still. And if you don't like the content, then you don't have to watch the content. It's, I don't know, it's pretty easy. Writing 
to me who's 55 years old and I'm not going to change, a leopard doesn't change its spots. I'm going to, you're more than likely not going to convince me of your view. I'll read it, happy to do it, but I'm not going to have debates about climate change and all these other things uh, that I talk about. Uh, I've already made my mind up on these things and it's very difficult at this point uh, to change them unless something extraordinary is presented to me, but the same old emotional rhetorical arguments, I'm not interested in. I've, we beat those to, to a pulp. And uh, so we're gonna, I'm gonna talk about what I wanna talk about. Uh, a lot of people like that. Uh, that's why the channel grows. If you're not inclined to that, fast forward or go, you know, don't watch the videos. So occasionally we have to put that disclaimer out for folks because that's just how it is here in uh, 2022 in the great United States. Okay, something I think uh, that I have not forgotten, it, this is off the radar screen now, the disease that cannot be mentioned, you can read it here, what we're talking about. And one of the things I've been following, you know, I go to a lot of alternative uh, news outlets. I like to listen to guys like Chris Martinson at Peak Prosperity, who's been very good on this. Um, all the people that you don't, that the mainstream doesn't want you to listen to, Peter McCullough, you know, uh, all these people that, uh, uh, we're way ahead of this and we're called, uh, you know, all kinds of names and tried to be sidelined and all that. And so um, I haven't forgotten about this because I think this is the biggest IQ test in the history of the modern world, at least since I've been alive. And what we're seeing is, you know, why I'm bringing this up is because what's starting to happen now is that um, the excess deaths from taking these, these therapeutics is starting to surface now. And uh, claims at insurance companies, we've seen uh, claims come up. And the guy that you need to kind of look up who's did real good work on this is a guy named Edward Dowd. He's not really like a nut. He's a former investment banker. He's very successful. And he started looking at these results and what was going on with this, uh, uh, you know, this therapeutic as far as excess deaths. You know, Chris Martinson puts it very well at Peak Prosperity. The way we should judge this is not how we feel about it or what we think about it. It's the data. And did this therapeutic result in better overall health comes for a population? And it didn't. And now as we go on, we're starting to get more data and starting to actually cost people money. It's starting to cost insurance companies money because people are dying and they have to pay out um, insurance claims. And they're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And you're seeing you know, uh, these excess deaths basically in Gen X and millennial people that are way above what they should be. You know, I'm not gonna, I don't have time to get into it in a short blurb. I'm gonna put a link to the article, but excessive deaths are, you know, every year the, uh, they have an expectation of how many people in each age cohort are going to pass away from all causes. Okay, so it pretty much follows a steady state, may vary a, you know, a percent or so, but you know, when we have an 84% uh, increase in excess mor mortality in the fall of 2021 for people between 25 and 40, this is a problem. And so um, this is going to result, I think, I've said this before, you know, a lot of times I don't get everything right. I'm not 100% in my predictions, I'm not, but I always try to think ahead of what's gonna happen. I think when this all comes out eventually, this litigation that's going to be around this therapeutic is going to make the asbestos claims and mesothelioma claims look like nothing. I know you've probably seen those commercials on late night cable about asbestos. People had asbestos they had billions of dollars in litigation and claims against the companies. And they had to set up uh, all kinds of these funds to deal with it. Um, I think this is going to be even bigger because uh, so many people were affected. And uh, so basically, I'll put a link to this article. Basically, millennials suffered a Vietnam event in 2021, and Gen Xers died in record numbers after the vaccines were rolled out. I should say therapeutics. Oop, I don't want the AI to clip me. More than 61,000 millennials and record numbers of Gen Xers died in 2021 alone after the therapeutics hailed as miracles were rolled out, leaving an unprecedented wake of mortality in the last quarter of the year. The millennial generation aged about 25 to 40 experienced a staggering 84% increase 
and excess mortality in the fall of 2021, former BlackRock portfolio manager Edward Dowd told Steve Bannon in an episode of War Room in March. Dowd described it as, quote, the worst excess, worst ever excess mortality, I think, in history. So uh, if you want to look this guy up, he's uh, been interviewed on podcasts and stuff. Interesting guy, interesting take on things. But I think, you know, this is right off the off the front page now, right? We've got the mandates off of uh, the federal judge overturned the mass mandates on the plane. We're, you know, we've got the new thing going on over in Eastern Europe. Everybody forgot about, you know, the uh, disease that cannot be mentioned, but I did not forget. And many other people didn't forget. And I think the repercussions are going to manifest over the upcoming months and years uh, on this deal in the various state bars and lawyers and these insurance companies, we already had like a West German insurance executive was fired because he was bringing this to light. And so when it starts costing people money, that's when the litigation is going to start because somebody's going to have to pay. And what about all of these employers? I, you know, a lot of people warn these employers to be very careful with these mandates, especially with this new, you know, groundbreaking, un, really untested therapeutic um, where they forced people to get this. Well, they're going to be liable if something happens. You know, it only takes one or two cases to set a precedence and the lawyers come out of the woodwork. The signs will be going up along the freeway. You know, where you see the uh, ambulance chasers with the car wreck signs, it'll be for the disease that cannot be mentioned, therapeutics. Were you fired for refusing to get this? And, you know, or were you damaged because of this? I mean, it's, it's going to, I predict it's going to gain momentum because we're very, uh, you know, we like to litigate in this in, in the U.S. And if this thing gets any momentum, which I predict it will, um, then it's going to be a problem. This is a big deal. You know, like I said, you know, the typical excess mortality doesn't really change. Plus or minus one or two percent every year um, stays, you know, along a predicted path. Right. And to zoom up 84 percent right after mandates went into effect. Um, <laughs> you know, it's at least something to look at. That's what I've said before. I don't believe that, you know, um, correlation is causation or whatever, however that goes. Uh, but when you have such excessive things happening, it's worth looking at, right? And so uh, I, I just wanted to talk about this because I think this, this is gonna be on the back burner simmering for a while. Okay, next. Somebody, a couple of people emailed me to say I was wrong about this uh, war in Ukraine. Um, I got it wrong. You know, um, the Russians uh, didn't take the place over in three weeks. I don't know if I said that. What I said, I remember saying was the day the war started that it was already over. I don't think I put a timeline on it. I thought that it wouldn't take as long as it's taken. But, it, it, and I don't know, I'm not in the Ministry of Defense nor do I have any of Russia, nor do I have any contacts there. I'm just going on information that I see. But uh, strategically, I see no change. Um, the, the things that were, I think the strategic elements have developed a little bit better to give us more clarity on what the goals for Russia are, but they're still the same was stated by um, the Ministry of Defense and, and Putin, which was the demilitarization, which was phase one. Uh, the denazification program. I'm not going to get into that debate. Uh, I think it's well established. There's many. If you want the information, you can get the information on, these, on what's going on uh, with that whole uh, deal. Uh, and now we're in the phase two. When phase two is the conquest of the Donbass, which is in effect, and uh, you know we've already seen the first victory, which was Mariupol. Mariupol has been conquered. Um, with the exception of the Azovstal, the remnants of the eight to 14,000 Azov battalion and various other Ukrainian uh, armed forces units that were in the city have retreated to the Azovstal steelworks. They are in the catacombs, they are cut off, they have diminishing ammunition, food and water. And uh, the city of Mariupol has been uh, officially um, liberated. Uh, if you're inclined, you can see uh, the Patrick Lancaster, who's on YouTube. He's a United States citizen that has lived in Donetsk. He's chronicled the war there since 2014. He's in the city. You can see his videos. Um, they're very eye-opening. This guy is like in the middle of it. 
Um, but there's, you know, it, this is another one of those things like the disease that can't be mentioned. A lot of people have already made their mind up. That's fine. Uh, what I want to talk about is, is what are the repercussions? You even have Boris Johnson now saying, you're seeing the shift, right? Boris Johnson said, well, we may have to consider the fact that Russia may actually win this war. Um, he said that recently. The press has kind of, in the, in the West, has kind of moved the, 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 the dynamic to, you know, this of, you know, the Ukrainian army is going to take Moscow in two weeks and the ghost of Kiev and the old lady babushka throwing a pickle jar at an SU-25 flying over an apartment building in Kiev and knocking it down to, well, you know, Russia may actually win this. We have to up our game. So um, Russia will win. Uh, they will achieve their goals. I don't know the timing. I made a mistake. I will admit to making the mistake of making a prediction and then putting a time frame on it. You shouldn't do that. That's a mugs game. I, I, I know better than that. But uh, from whatever, everything I've seen now, um, you know, the, you read all these people on Twitter, they're supposed to be experts. I think one of the guys' name is Rob Lee. You know, the Russian army is going to run out of tires. They don't have enough tires for their transports and the logistics will break down. Or they're running out of ammunition or they don't have enough rockets and, and stuff. Well, I, I don't see any change or, or, you know, all their tanks are gone or they don't uh, have, um, you know, whatever. Um, I'm not seeing it. Uh, it's... There's a big fog of war here. There's a lot of propaganda on both sides. What we're seeing is even the Ministry of Def or the Ministry of Defense in Ukraine admitted today that 42 settlements and villages were taken on the Donbas front. Um, what's happening here to review and why this is important, why you have to prepare yourself for this if you're inclined to believe the mainstream media in the West, um, because this is going to be significant because an escalation can happen, which can affect the, our markets that we're invested in. And, uh, you know, the Russians have, have, they have complete, they have air superiority. They don't have supremacy. The Ukrainians still have some ability to um, do anti-aircraft uh, stuff and fly some aircraft. But, you know, now we have, we basically have a change in command and a change in strategy. The strategy is no longer the hands-off, um, we're going to try to minimize, we're going to hope the Ukrainians surrender. That's not happening anymore. What they have done now is they're going back to their other tactics, which is the artillery and rocket artillery based land doctrine that the Russians uh, have had where they create these cauldrons. And this is uh, what they're doing, right? This is the main battle where, and you can see the cauldrons beginning to form or mini cauldrons beginning to form. Then there's no, I don't know, this map expands out. And you, now you have the forces coming from the south at the assault forces, like the Somali battalion and some other, the Chechen uh, uh, battalions that are, have been released from duty in Mariupol will now move north. And so with no ability to resupply because of the air supremacy that the Russians have and the standoff missile cap cap capability that they have. People need to understand that, you know, these units are cut off from each other. They have no fuel. They're not being resupplied because the railroad uh, junctions, the road junctions are being bombed. They're being watched continuously by satellite and by drones. And if you try to move any trucks or fuel trucks, any fuel depots, ammo depots have been hit weeks ago. If you try to move anything of significant quantity, it will be immediately seen and, and blown up. There was a uh, there was a deal the other day uh, where 20 Ukrainian tanks, like a suicide mission, they were going to blast through the lines and try to get into Russian territory, and uh, it was immediately turned back. I mean, you have to understand something how, you know, that... The, 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 the Ukrainian forces now are just do not have the ability to mount a credible counterattack, counteroffensive, just because of the combined arms uh, situation that the Russians have. They have a material advantage. Now, we continue to have these um, discussions with, you know, where the, the Europeans are going to send arms, are going to just, but you have to understand, look at a map of Ukraine, please. Look at how far away Western Ukraine is the Polish border, the Romanian border, the Slovakian border, and then you're going to bring this material across. Again, the Russians are watching all this. They have spies there too, believe me. They have people on the ground watching that are Ukrainians uh, or Russian people. And so you have human intelligence, you have satellites, you have all of this going on, 
And before this stuff even can get across, even get near the battlefield, it's going to be interdicted by the uh, standoff weapons or the Air Force. And not only that, you only have so many river crossings. The Dnieper River cuts the country in half, north to south, from Kyrgyzstan back up to Kiev. And there's only so many bridge crossings. So how are you going to get all of these weapons to the front? What, you're, what, what this is is another ploy by the, by the military-industrial complex for these countries to dump their Soviet-era um, weapons and then replace them with new modern weapons and then, you know, you know buy stock in General Dynamics, Lockheed, Boeing, BAE, all these companies are going to supply all these weapons when they dump their old stuff, Eastern European countries, onto Ukraine, uh, which is not going to be of any use. And so, you know, you have like the French saying they're going to send 18 howitzers. What are 18 howitzers going to do on these fronts that are, you know, 100 kilometers wide with 40,000 rounds of ammunition? This is ridiculous. If you have any kind of military <laughs> uh, thought or ability to think clearly, this is, this is, you can see what's going to happen. And, you know, the ghost of Kiev, all this propaganda, I mean, Yes, the Russians are suffering cash. They probably have 7,000 dead at this point, but the Ukrainians may have up to 30,000 dead. You should, their telegram is populated with channels that show this. The, after they get done, I mean, there's a lot of fortifications here. The Ukrainians have had years to build fortifications, and they're just pummeling, the Russians are just pump, st standing off, pummeling it with artillery and airstrikes, and it's horrible. It's horrible what you see, the after effects. I don't even like looking at this stuff anymore. Um, mangled body. It's just terrible. And you basically are just back to the old Soviet slash Russian doctrine, um, attrition, grind up, grind up, meat grinder. Um, if you want to see how this works, look at the first and second Chechen wars in um, Chechnya and what the Russians did to Grozny. Why is this important? Because we still, we still, have people in the West now, they're going to keep amping up, right? We're going to keep sending more weapons. We're going to keep this thing going as long as we can. And the longer this goes on without the Ukrainians cutting the deal, the worse deal they're going to end up getting. The I predict when this is over with, um, the Russians will control a land corridor. Well, right now they're at Kyrgyzstan, which is on the east side of the um, Dnieper River. Um, I believe after Donbass gets taken, that you'll have a redeployment and then moving west uh, through Nikolaev and possibly Odessa, then creating a land bridge along the entire Azov and Black Sea from Rostov-on-Don all the way over to um, Transnistria on the border of Moldova. That will allow no sea access for Ukraine. You will then probably see a, a, a Russian-type um, controlled puppet states or whatever you already have uh talking of a referendum in crimea or uh, in kirsan oblast to create the kirsan people's republic similar to the dpr and lpr um, and it will probably pass because a lot of people that are pro-ukrainian have left the country um people that were uh you know and we're not seeing the guerrilla war we're not people who want this to end if you look at patrick lancaster's videos uh the people that were in the city that have been has been completely destroyed. I'm talking World War II. If you want to see what live, what, what, what devastation modern warfare can do or old school warfare, watch Patrick Lancaster's videos. And um, at least, you know, uh, there's no guerrilla warfare going on. People are tired of it. They want it to stop. They just want peace. They want to live their life. They are lucky they weren't killed. They're happy about that and they want to move on. And so um, I think what you're going to end up with here if the if if the Zelensky uh, regime continues not wanting to negotiate or settle this, or if they're hoping for a hail mary, or if the eighteen howitzers from France or the more javelins, it's funny because the Russians continue to put up videos and other Telegram channels of people on the ground. They just the Russian the Russian forces are just capturing all this equipment. People are just dropping their weapons and running. I mean, there are there is stiff resistance in areas. There are still competent soldiers, but you know they're into their reservists now. They had border guards that were captured the other day. They just said their commanders ran away, so they surrendered. They're not going to. People aren't going to just get killed for no reason. So morale is low, um, and so. Uh, I just don't see anything positive out of this. And what you could end up with is just a basically Russian controlled 
territory east of the Dnieper River and then this Ukrainian rump state that's going to be cut off from the sea and, you know, will have very little economic prospects. And then you can see, you know, countries like Poland and stuff that have eyes on territory they used to control in Western Ukraine. So what's the long story about this is that the EU and the European Commission and NATO aren't backing down. Um, they're talking about now more sanctions because the sanctions that didn't work do more sanctions, put more weapons in, do more sanctions, not going to work. They don't have a reverse gear. They're not going to stop uh, because these people are politically now uh, all in on this. And you're talking about somebody like Ursula van der Leyen and some of these other people, their careers will be over. And so in the meantime, hundreds, if not thousands of people are being killed every week. And so that we can, because these people don't have a reverse gear and they got, uh, they kind of conned Ukraine into this and the Zelensky regime fell for it and they got rug pulled. There isn't going to be a no-fly zone. There isn't going to be NATO troops on the ground fighting Russians. This isn't going to happen. It's been plainly stated. Now you have political unrest going on in Germany because people are saying that the Green Party and the coalition with Olaf Scholz, who is weak and stupid, uh, uh, he's being criticized for not doing enough. So like I said, this has the potential to escalate it. You know, they're banned already coal uh, imports from Russian Federation. Now they're talking about banning oil and eventually gas. And uh, this has repercussions. This is positive possibly for um, oil prices. And uh, well, not positive, it'll be a net negative for most consumers, but for producers, um, if this happens, and it's just, like I said, it's just getting piling one dumb decision on top of another dumb decision. And uh, so it's important to follow this. It's not war porn or, yeah, I want to be right or you're right. What's really happening and what are the effects? Because these people in the EU are not backing down. The people in the US are just doubling down on this. Okay. Um, we're getting into uh, late April, early May. I don't, these are areas that need to be planted where there's a lot of the grains come from. That's not going to happen now. You know, we've talked about what that repercussions can be, and that's building. So there's a lot of implications the longer this goes on. And like I said, these people are completely invested politically, emotionally, uh, and you know, devastation is going to happen economically, politically, and socially around the world as a result of this. And you know, what is the what you know? President Biden continues to talk about this. He's invested in it. What is the strategic national interest for the United States in this? Uh, it has not been explained. If you know, put it in the show notes. And don't tell me democracy because Ukraine's not a democracy. It's a corrupt oligarchy like Russia and similar to where the US is going, controlled by money interests, uh, where assassinations happen, where um, reporters are killed, just like in Russia. Um, these are not good places, okay? These are not free and democratic places contrary to what you've been told. So this has to be followed. We have to try to game it out. Um, and right now, the way, I, way I'm looking at it, um, somebody asked me, well, it's kind of looking like a stalemate. It's not a stalemate. I follow this every day and the advances are happening, territories being given up. Yes, the first month uh, in phase one, I think they tried to go in cheap. They were hoping that uh, people would just give the cities up Mayors would just turn the keys of the city over. That didn't happen. So now we're going to go to the uh, old school meat grinder, uh, Soviet, uh, you know, land doctrine, which is uh, cauldrons and heavy use of artillery and rocket utility. And I don't think you, you do not want to be on the receiving end of that. Plus combined arms, um, you know, airstrikes. It's not good. It's going to be very ugly, and tens of thousands of people have the possibility of losing their lives in this. And uh, you're basically killing off the young guys in uh, the Ukrainian army. It's the you know, it's not good to do. It's not good for the future of a country to kill off its young people. So that's my update on that. And like I said, we have to talk about because it, it has worldwide implications now. Everybody in the West is all in on this and it's not going the way they want it. So they're keep amping this thing up. And here we go, EU to ban Russian oil. I'll put a link to all of these articles so you can read them yourself. 
you can determine if I'm spinning it or if you get a different interpretation. Senior White House advisor, Europe is determined to ban imports of Russian oil and gas. Well, that, okay, then um, Dmitry Med Medvedev, who is uh, actually more of a hawk than Putin is, and was the former president, I think he's the prime minister now, they kind of switch back and forth. Um, you know, somebody said that six months after they did this, some economists said he said it would be six days. That's what I believe. You know, the prices would skyrocket around the world and uh, these countries would be, in Europe would be thrust into economic devastation. But that's my opinion. Here's Janet Yellen. She's the Treasury Secretary of the United States. Full ban of Russian crude could have unintended consequences to the U.S. economy. Yes, because if you ban Russian oil, Europe's oil demand is still there. They have to get the oil from someplace else. That means they're competing with other people for uh, all the oil except for the Russian oil. So you just create these inefficiencies and these price increases because you're introducing, you know, all these efficiencies that have built up over time for the globalization are unwinding, creating more inefficiencies and higher prices. Europe's largest economy, Germany, remains opposed to a full ban on Russian oil and gas. Yes, because their economy will collapse. It's not me saying this. It's the chairman of BASF. It's the chairman of Bosch. It's the chairman of Bayer that have said this. It's the trade unions that have said this. Trade unions now have sided in Germany, have sided with the companies and said the same thing. Okay. It, 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 and God bless the people of Germany if they want to have an economic depression to support an oligarch corrupt government in Ukraine. God bless them. They're, that, that's their right to do that. But people should understand what they're signing up for. You're signing up for a deflationary depression. That's what you're signing up for, okay? To support oligarchs and corrupt corruption and anti-democratic governments that ban political parties and kill journalists. That's what they do in Ukraine. That's what they do in Russia. Why would you want to be involved in any of this? The sticking point is finding a way to hurt Russia's finances without raising the price of oil and gas, hurting Europe and the United States. Well, that's really the point, isn't it? That's the rub. And you can't do that. So I don't anticipate any bans on oil and gas from Russia to Europe anytime soon. I think maybe they get there. But I think at some point, um, I think that the coalition in Europe is going to crack. Um, there's already pressure happening. I mean, we're having an election in France this week, weekend. I think it's on Sunday or Monday, I don't remember. And uh, Le Pen is a lot closer than she was last time. Macron was supposed to walk away with this thing. And uh, I think the higher prices that are being caused by this um, war are starting to affect um, working class people, middle class people. Um, and I don't think they're all jazzed up for this as people thought. You know, the, the, the initial emotional response about we've got to do something is starting to run into the economic reality of this is costing me a lot of money and affecting my standard of living. And regardless, people can criticize that and they can say, um, well, that shouldn't, you know, people want to be virtuous and they want to do the right thing, but uh, everybody's an individual and makes their own decision. And quite frankly, uh, whether people like it or not, most people don't care about some way off war that doesn't really affect them when the price of their food, shelter, and energy is skyrocketing. That does affect them. And that's just reality. That's just facts. And so OPEC plus exports continue to decline um, for various reasons, uh, lack of maintenance, um, internal consumption in OPEC countries, lack of investment, uh, a whole plethora of things. So we have this, you know, this is over the last four years. Obviously, this is the, the effects of the disease that could not be mentioned. But you see an overall trend uh, here in OPEC. So again, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about this. You know, a lot of people have written me, they're saying, you're, John, you're being schizophrenic. You know, you say we're going to have a commodity bull market, but you say you might just pull the rug and sell everything. Um, yeah, it's, that's where we're at, guys. We're, 
look at what well, look at what's happening in the United States. Let me take five minutes and, and tell you what where my mind is because I am back and forth on this in my mind. We have the constituents, we have the um, basis for a commodity supercycle. We've talked about it ad nauseum: lack of investment, increased demand, um, deglobalization that was happening even before this war, uh, resource nationalism, just you know, more difficulty in finding new deposits, all that stuff. And then we put on, you know, this, this new situation with this war and the basically de-evolution of the world from a unipolar uh, situation with the United States dominating to more of a multipolar situation and resource, you know, nationalism and different blocks that are looking for their own interests over the interests of the Atlanticists. And so, um, That you know was our basis for a super cycle coming out of this COVID, the economy recovering around the world. But now, what are we running into? This super amount of inflation that's happening around the world. Let's look at the United States, for example. You know, running eight and a half, close to nine percent inflation. If you look at John Williams, it's probably double that. If you calculate inflation we way we used to, and so we're raising interest rates. And so you know, Marty Zweig is a guy that I I've talked about before that I'm I followed. Matter of fact, Mike Elkin used to work for Marty Swag back in the day, the uranium guy, Mike Elkin. And uh, anyways, he wrote a book uh, about trading. I forget the name of it. I have it. It's on my bookshelf. But one of the famous things that Marty Swag said was about don't not fighting the Fed. Okay. And, you know, he had this uh, three, st three steps in the fall, three Fed rating crisis increases in the market would tank. Uh, I remember him saying that. So, I mean, that was back when, you know, monetary policy wasn't as um, psychotic as it is now where we had zero interest rates, but we are in a tightening cycle. We have, we have a lot of tailwinds behind the commodity super cycle and resource super cycle, which I think is going to be a decade long secular event, but we are probably going to have some cyclical declines within that secular event. So we start here on the lower left at the beginning of the decade and end up at the upper right at the end of the decade with probably several big pullbacks along the way. Why? Because they have to deal with this inflation, guys. Okay, so they're panicking. Um, we're talking about lowering the balance sheet or cutting back on the balance sheet, right, um, on the QE. We're talking about raising rates. That's tightening liquidity. That's not good for investment vehicles. That's not good for the stock market or the bond market. Look at the bond yields, okay? They're, they're skyrocketing, well, relatively speaking. And so what typically happens is, you know, what we typically see in these events is as liquidity begins to dry up, it starts creating cracks and tremors. And it's like, you know, seismic events under the economy and under these markets. And the first thing you usually see crack is the bond market. And that's already starting to happen. I've showed uh, my high yield charts where high yield is starting to blow out. Um, and it's like Jim Paplava says on financial, uh, uh, the Financial Sense News Hour, they're going to keep raising rates until they break something. That's typically what happens. And um, I don't know what that will be. We don't know until after the effect, but that's what they'll do. And then they'll panic and start cutting rates. But in the meantime, you can have, you know, there's no reason why the oil price couldn't go down 30 or 40%. You could, there's no reason why you couldn't have an, a recession, go into a recession and have commodity markets pull way back. That's, that's, that's where the thinking in my head is. It's like, okay, so I have indicators and uh, so a couple of people wrote me, yes, in the next newsletter, I will show you that I'll start showing the indicators that I use because so, people are worried. They're signing up. And they're going, well, I thought we were in a resource bull market. And now you're talking about pulling the plug on everything. And so you, people need to understand that, yes, I believe that we have these secular decade long um, forces that are pushing uh, the are pushing going to push. Uh, commodities and resources to a higher level, but there is quite likely going to happen a couple or several big pullbacks along the way, because specifically as liquidity dries up, you, you typically see the bond market crack first, then, which we've seen. Now we're seeing the equity market beginning to crack this week. And then finally, the last market that usually cracks is commodities. 
Okay, that's general statement. That's not, you know, written in stone. And so, yeah, I am thinking about it because we have a lot of big gains in the newsletter and I'm not going to sit here and give them back. Okay. But then again, you know, timing this is very difficult. You know, we're not going to catch the exact top. And that's why I encourage people, you know, they write me and they say, well, you know, yeah, you're right. You know, not only do you have the, the think about this. I want to add one more thing before I get to this. Not only do you have the monetary headwinds now because of the rates going up and, um, uh, QE being throttled back, but you also have this big phys fiscal uh, situation where you had last year during the disease that could not be mentioned, fiscal response, you had a deficit of 10% of GDP. That's being throttled back. That's fading now. The effects of that stimulus, if you will, to the economy is fading and there's nothing coming behind it. So you have these headwinds. You have tailwinds and headwinds, okay? What is going to overcome which, okay? This is why it makes it very precarious. This is why this is not easy. And so, yes, we have situations like this chart that are very bullish for oil long-term, but we could very easily be in a recession this summer or this fall. It looks like we are heading for a recession here in the U.S. Do I think oil prices will be $100 a barrel or heading to 120 or 130 if we're into a recession? No. Some of, one of the guys that I follow on Seeking Alpha uh, already put up some charts about, you know, gasoline demand is starting to decrease now. Yeah, because it's people are getting squeezed, okay? This is what happens when prices go up. So lots of things are happening, lots of plates in the air. It's not just a simple you know, one off. And, and, and some people say, well, that's not helpful. Well, that's just how it is though. And so if you have two, three, 400% increases in, let's say, you know, a coal company and we have, and you're nervous because what's happening, like I said, you're not going to catch the exact top. You can take some off the table. Okay. You can always sit in cash. You can always sit there and wait and see what happens. Okay. You can, take down half your position. You can take down whatever, I always recommend this, whatever, however far you need to take down your position so you're not nervous anymore. If it's 100%, then that's what you need to do. If it's 50%, that's what you need to do. If it's 20%, that's what you need to do. Okay, but I don't know your individual situation. I can't speak for you. And, uh, you know, I'm going to put my indicators that I follow. There's a few of them that I use. And that's what I go by. And um, that will tell me, I know that I'm not going to hit the exact top, but I will tell the people in the newsletter and I'm, you know, things are start. like I said, the last three weeks, things are starting to weaken. Things are, it looks like the headwinds may be overcoming the tailwinds. So here's another tailwind though, right? Here's Rio Tinto's first quarter report, more commodity supply issues. Here's the highlighted sections. Basically, um, further downside risks include a prolonged war and other geopolitical tensions, extended labor and supply shortages, and monetary policy adjustments to curb inflation. That's just what we talked about. This is from Rio Tinto. Go down here further. Um, they talk about their input prices for like building new mines and, and supplies that they need. Recent input cost increases are the largest raw material cost hikes since the oil crisis in 1973. Rising interest rates globally pose downside risks to economic growth. Lower economic growth or a recession is going to reduce resource demand, which will result in resource prices going down. They could go down 30, 40, or 50%. You need, if you're going to play in these markets, you need to understand that. Here's a tailwind. Resource nationalism continues. Uh, here's Cuppy. It's a tweet from Cuppy. Would you like some resource nationalism with your commodity supercycle? Uh, just has us here where Mexico's House of Deputies just voted to nationalize lithium, I guess, in Mexico. I don't know how much lithium they have in Mexico. Maybe this is not a big deal, but it's part of a trend that we are seeing. Okay, countries are looking around the world and saying, look, we got to keep our stuff here for our use. And that is not... Uh, conducive to lower prices. And so like, again, all these, like, like I've put out before, all these, you know, back and forths. Uh, here's another 
article. Indonesia, ban this happened today, I think. Indonesia bans palm oil exports as global food inflation spikes. Indonesia, the world's top palm oil producer. I mean, palm oils used, I mean, I don't recommend you eat foods with these, uh, these oils. You got to get off that. That's what kills, that's, that's what'll kill you. It's not uh, saturated fats like uh, eating meat and eggs. That stuff's good for you. This is what kills you is these vegetable oils, processed oils and processed food. But anyways, that's another discussion. Announced plans to ban exports of the most wildly, widely used vegetable oil on Monday in a shock move that could further inflame surging global food inflation. The halting of shipments of the cooking oil and its raw material, widely used in products ranging from cakes to cosmetics, could raise, it won't, could raise, it will raise costs, okay, for packaged food producers globally and force governments to choose between using vegetable oils in food or for biofuel. So again, so you have all these things. So if you don't have enough palm oil to make biofuel, that means you have to use more diesel and we already have diesel shortages. So all these things have multiple, <laughs> I, I know it, it, it seems it, it is a lot to take in, but this is how it is. Indonesia counts for more than half of global palm oil supply. So when they say could cause, if the producer of palm oil that produces 50% of the world's palm oil no longer allows exports of said commodity, prices for palm oil are going up. Uh, you may want to look on the Singapore exchanges There are several palm oil producers there. I haven't looked at them in a while. Um, if you have the ability to trade overseas, I think that uh, have palm oil plantations in Malaysia and things like that may be interesting. I don't know, I haven't looked at them in a while. I don't know where their valuations are. Like I said, there's always an opportunity. I still think regardless of what happens in the rest of the resource market, I think agriculture is going to go nuts over the next year or two, just because we've, we, we, have set in, we have set in place, we have set in motion a global food crisis that is going to be exacerbated not only by these man-made things with lack of fertilizer, lack of the ability to grow in certain areas now because of conflict, but also because we are leaving an era a decade or more of excellent growing conditions and we are going to already starting to see challenging growing conditions, which I had forecasted and had been thinking about uh, we were gonna see. Regardless of what you think about my views on um, uh, the cooling effects that I think we're heading towards. We were just due for a period of suboptimal weather even, just as part of the normal fluctuations of weather we had just a, over a decade of just like super abnormally positive growing conditions which led to surpluses and us getting spoiled on low food costs which is now going away rapidly in a video broadcast indonesia's president joko widodo said he wanted to inch here's what you're starting to see the reason i put this up here is because this is what we're seeing from a lot of politicians in various countries this is the first guy to say this exact same thing he wanted to ensure the availability of food products at home after global food inflation soared to a record high following russia's invasions of major crop producer ukraine so there you go we've seen that before Here's another tweet. Mainstream media finally catches up to us. That's what I put here, trying to be a little bit uh, cheeky. Um, basically, rising fertilizer costs are catching up to rice farmers, threatening supplies. From the article, uh, I'm not going to put these Bloomberg articles there. You got to subscribe to get to them. I just like to put these clips here that people put on from, uh, from the articles. Lower fertilizer use because of higher costs. May mean, see, here we go again. They don't like to make predictions either. They're not stupid, but you can infer what's going to happen because we've talked about it. Could happen, may happen, no, will happen. That's we're at the will happen stage now. We're just talking about how bad's the damage going to be, how many people are going to starve. That's where we're at now. And I don't know the answer to that. And I don't even like contemplating it at this point, guys. The International Rice Research Institute predicts that yields could drop 10% in the next season translating to a loss of 36 million tons of rice or the equivalent of feeding 500 million people. As you well know, rice is a staple food in many places, especially in Asia, okay? This is gonna, in, in Africa, this is gonna be a problem. 
Okay, this is simply going to be a problem. It's not even just necessarily uh, the effect of the pricing of fertilizer, it's the actual availability in some cases. So I wanted to show the um, this oil field services chart going back about 10 years. Uh, you can see here uh, before the, uh, the last peak was at 995 on the index. We went all the way down to 64. So that's basically like a 95% decline over six years. And uh, after the disease that cannot be mentioned liquidity event, we started coming back. This is, you know, basically at negative 47 oil. When oil was going to go away, we're the end of oil, blah, blah, blah. And this is probably the worst depression in the history of the oil field services uh, sector. Many, we've talked about this many times before, that's why I'm bullish on oil field services. Uh, well, as long as uh, caveat that with as long as oil prices stay reasonably high, but you can see that we've had a tremendous move from 64. We had a five bagger just on this in the last since the uh, beginning of 2020, and uh, you know this thing needs to pull back. It's 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 got ahead of itself, and that's what happened. I think a lot of I don't think I think we're still due for a, another move higher in commodities and resources. If you if you have to press me on this, but uh, we're going to have pullbacks. We've had this happen before, right? We have. You know, I, I saw uranium, somebody, like I said, I, I've, I've been really wrapped up in uh, Holy Week this week, so I don't nearly know everything that's going on, but uranium dropped five bucks, so everybody's panicking on uranium on Twitter, uh, what I did see. Uh, I'm not panicking, okay? Nothing has changed fundamentally. Uh, I don't know why it dropped five dollars this week. Maybe uh, somebody, a big fund was dumping. I don't know. Maybe it's just a liquidity event. Maybe it is a turn, and, and this is a an intermediate top and we're going to pull back. I don't know, but uh, it's the same thing here. Uh, this thing is way ahead of itself. I mean, this thing has basically doubled uh, in the last six months or close to a double in the last six months. So you got to, it's the same thing that happened in uranium stocks last year, right? So what happens is we have so many people now getting into oil, bullish on oil, bullish on resources, bullish on uranium. And, uh, you know, uh, you have these periodic pullbacks. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to try to sit here and say, well, why was the market down the last two or three days? Or are we going to have a crash on Monday? I don't, I don't play that game. It's, it's a mugs game. So, uh, you know, are we in a, basically an oil field services recovery? And I put here to the, uh, you know, uh, you know, answer this young kid's question here. I kind of like this will probably be the thumbnail. It's happening, isn't it? It's really happening. Well, yes, as long as oil prices stay reasonably high. We're talking about a recovery in oil field services. And so just want to go over a couple of results for Halliburton Schlumberger. Halliburton had their Q1 results. International revenue grew 15% compared to the first quarter of 2021, with recent accelerating, with activity accelerating across all international markets. North America revenue grew 37% year on year. With the acceleration of both drilling and completions, higher utilization in March and net pricing gains drove margin expansion. That's what we want to see. Um, I've got a couple smaller Canadian oil field services companies in the uh, AIA portfolio. Um, and one of the companies was struggling with this exact issue because prices for raw materials, labor, uh, parts that were soaring, and they were having some problems passing those costs on. It looks like the big boys uh, their margins are now expanding, and they're able to uh, do that by raising prices. Uh, tightness in North America is not just in hydraulic fracturing equipment. It exists across the whole oil and gas value chain in spare parts, engines, electronics, and many other inputs that cost more and are sometimes not immediately available. This will not allow for a full recovery and this will put more pressure on supply again another potential tailwind for oil prices right if we can't ramp up the new supply that will have a tendency to push you know if the demand's there then we will not have adequate supply we can't respond to it so that's a tailwind for the oil price again against these other uh headwinds and what wins probably monetary policy so uh, we have to watch this, guys. We're, we are sitting on a keg of dynamite um, with a lit fuse, and we don't know how long the fuse is. So that's kind of the analogy I want to use. But here's uh, 
This is Schlumberger's Q1 results came out today. All divisions and areas grew year on year, resulting in 14% overall growth. This was achieved through double digit revenue growth internationally and by fully capitalizing on our North America exposure with 32% revenue growth. Second, the elevation of energy security as a prior priority will further drive capacity expansion and optionality to delivering more diverse oil and gas supply. Third, favorable conditions for product and services, net pricing improvements have clearly emerged. Again, now we have two companies basically saying the same thing, that they are now looking at an environment where they are able to raise prices and get their margins up, expanding across both North America and the international markets. Hopefully, these same trends will apply to our small cap oil field services companies because, you know, these are very large multi-billion dollar companies. The company I'm talking to you about in the portfolio are companies with like sub one, I think a sub 50 million, other one sub 100 million market caps, you know, so these things could skyrocket. Uh, so if their margins turn around, which I anticipate they will, if people want to drill, they're going to have to pay. So uh, the second half of the year is, which is typically the be best part of the year, by the way, is shaping up to be particularly strong based on our view of a significant pipeline of customer activity, upcoming product backlog conversion, and the growing impact of net pricing. So there you have it. We're starting to see, uh, you know, but it's going to be incumbent, like I showed here on, you know, prices for oil will have to stay reasonably high so that it gives confidence to people, um, the EMPs, that they'll have sufficient cash flow to uh, greenlight these projects. Last slide, um, Biden backs nuclear in the US with 6 billion. Basically, Biden administration announces $6 billion bailout effort to save nuclear power plants at risk of closing, citing the need to continue nuclear energy as a carbon-free power source to combat climate change. You know, I'm really optimistic longer term on uranium and nuclear power. I don't know how you can't be, but again, liquidity plays an effect. When stocks go down, when thing, when liquidity rise up, people just sell because they, they want to get out. Um, and so if I think if you have a longer time frame, if you can endure the pullbacks, you know, I think that uh, these are buying opportunities because regardless of what happens in the economy, nuclear power is going to continue. The fundamentals for uranium and nuclear power are just going to stay positive, regardless of what happens in the stock market or the Federal Reserve, whatever they're doing. Now, again, these trade on stock markets, right? So when the stock market isn't a bear market, most stocks go down. I've repeated this ad nauseum. So uh, if you want to try to trade it, you can. I'm not a trader. I just try to stay with the fundamentals. So I think, you know, I'm not saying you can hide out in nuclear. I'm not saying you can hide out in agriculture, but I still think that the fundamentals are very, very positive in these markets. Um, oil will be, and the other commodities like copper are going to be uh, econo more economically sensitive. Let's put it that way. And the thing, if you actually look at like the nickel price and the copper price, yeah, the, a lot of the stocks went down that produce these things, but I didn't really see it like, a big pullback in copper. It's still like four fifty a pound. Nickel's over fifteen dollars a pound. So um, we really have to watch this, right? You know, you got what's going on in China with the lockdown. So it's it's almost not worth exerting the brain power to try to figure out um, what the net result is of all these inputs. If we're because you know economists that have PhDs have a hard time doing it. So what I try to do is just buy things that are cheap, that have a catalyst to turn around and then sell them when they become not so cheap. And I will tell you that we're closer to the end of this cyclical resource bull market than we are to the start. So you need to know that going in. But we have other things in the, in the um, portfolio. I buy other companies too that are cheap that are not necessarily tied to the economic cycle and that are cheap also. I mean, the goal is to find things that are worth a dollar that you can buy for less than a dollar. That's really what we try to do here. And uh, you have to sit and wait for the stuff to play out sometimes. So there are other, there's always opportunities going on. You know, I talked about Uzbekistan. I haven't talked about it in a long time. It's going great guns, you know, and uh, I, I've, I'm very happy with the way the economy is growing there. It was one of the only economies in the world that grew during the uh, 2020, during the major COVID situation. 
uh, had positive growth. So anyway, that's it for this week, guys. I know there was a lot of information. I know I threw a lot of uh, competing ideas at you. I know that frustrates some of you, but that's just how it is. And that's what my thinking's at. And I don't think it's uh, being um, wishy-washy. It's just, that's what's really, you have these tailwinds and these headwinds pushing against uh, this, uh, you know, uh, pushing against this, uh, our portfolio. And it's like, well, where are we at? Are the tailwinds able to continue move, moving us higher or are the headwinds going to overcome the tailwinds and we're going to you know, have cyclical bear markets inside a secular bull market? And don't forget, you know, get, look up Marty Zweig and get his book and read it. I, I'm going to pull it off the shelf and reread it because he talks a lot about monetary policy and how it affects stock prices. Stan Druckenmiller says the same thing. Um, I remember him saying that in his opinion, it's not really earnings that, uh, well, long-term, the prospects of the business, as Munger says, are what's most important. But in the short and medium term, liquidity and sediment can be the driving factors for stock prices. So um, like I said, this is not an easy game. That's why uh, not that many people are successful at it. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate you. Like I said, uh, trying to get out the content as best we can. We got a lot of stuff going on. Be patient and uh, look, be looking to interact with you in the comments. Talk to you next week.